acknowledge and identify. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome, human. Logan! I am ready for you. How many of you want this to be lasting? I never heard of a Sandman running, ever. There is no sanctuary. Fish, plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. You don't have to die. Well, no one has to die at 30. You can live. Live. You are terminated, runner. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner, overwhelming, am I not? Now, collide the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bin. Retrogram complete. Proceed 03303. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and I am here once again with my buddy Scott H. Gardner. How's it going? It's going good. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I cannot wait to talk about this. Um, I, I have uh, I have very specific reasons for loving this issue as much as I do, which I will get into uh, when we get into our notes section on this. But yeah, looking forward to this one big time. Yeah. I don't have the same level of connection to this one more than any other issue in this series uh, that you do, but I, I understand your uh, your reasoning. So. <laughs> Yeah, this this is. I'm glad we're getting an opportunity to to run through this one. So let's see. Me too. How, how we do before we get into it? Uh, any any uh, discussion you want to have before you get to the synopsis? Um, only that. Uh, you know, in in my my ongoing obsession with uh, with Logan's Run. You know, I was writing up the synopsis on this. You know, rereading it and everything, and trying to stay away from going ahead in the in the later issues and all that sort of thing. But. Uh, I was reviewing the movie for the the portion of the movie that this book is going to cover, you know, just to do compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, you know, I was doing some research into, you know, different characters and everything. And I stumbled across a thing where um, Richard Jordan, uh, I, I, I think I, I think I already knew that he was dead, but I didn't realize he died as long ago as he actually did. Now he played Francis seven in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it just made me sad that he's gone because I really liked him along with this movie uh, another one of my favorite movies and don't laugh because I know it's not a great movie but I like it is Raise the Titanic mm-hmm. and he played uh, Dirk Pitt in that and I think that's probably the only two movies I ever saw him in so it's kind of odd to say that you know he was uh, an actor that I really really liked with only two movies but I really, really liked him, and uh, and it just makes me sad that he's not with us anymore. But and just for the sake of completeness, he died back in 1993. Yeah, and he was only 56 at the time. Yeah. And I'm just I'm looking at his IMDb page, uh, and just to go over, and I'm I'm not sure how big his roles were in these, but he was in uh, The Hunt for Red October, Dune, Logan's Run, yeah. Gettys- Gettysburg, Posse, Primary Motive. I don't know 
Heaven is a Playground, Shout, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, I'm hmm. just going to look for s- ones that might be significant, and I'm not really seeing anything else to speak of. I'm seeing a lot of TV uh, guest appearances. The only other one, I, I looked over that list real quick myself. I don't still have it in front of me, but the only one that, that stood out to me um, beyond Logan's Run and... Um, uh, Raise the Titanic was the hunt for October because I remember watching that movie for the first time and when he popped up I'm like oh my god it's Francis Seven so yeah it's one of those type of things but uh, yeah he plays the I'm not sure what he's a senator or something like that that's he, he's uh, like the movie kind of wraps up with him where the Russian whatever he is uh, ambassador or whatever comes to him and he goes uh, Richard Jordan goes, you lost another sub? That's kind of how the movie ends, and, uh, and I always like that. Well, um, do we have anything else? Uh, the only thing I would say is, and I guess this is compare and contrast to the movie, is much like Michael York compared to Logan, I actually prefer the comic book presentation of this character over what we see on the screen. <laughs> I think he's pretty cool on the screen. I'm not really criticizing him, but just in the, in the in the comic, especially since you pointed out his appearance similarities to Wolverine, there's something about him that just makes him look tougher and cooler than he does in the movie. Oh, yes. Now uh, uh, you're talking Francis, right? Yes. But I also, yeah. you know, last, last issue, I talked about how I kind of like the comic book presentation more than Michael York on Logan. <laughs> Yeah, we will I, we will definitely discuss that because the the splash page at the end of this book has always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one of those iconic comic book images, at, at least to my mind. And uh, yeah, he he just he looks awesome on that page. Francis does. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. It's funny because uh, you know, skipping way ahead here, my last note on this, I started to write it up, and then I was like, I don't know, do I really feel that way? But Basically, I was I was hemming and hawing about which do I like better? Do I like the movie better or do I like the comic better? And I think that's one of those things that we can continue to discuss as we go through these issues, maybe on a, an issue by issue basis. Like for for this particular sequence, you know, of the movie that this book covers, you know, at the end we can decide, you know, which one do we like better? If if we can actually decide, because I'm not sure I can decide. I, I keep kind of going back and forth on it for different reasons, but. We'll get into all that. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and jump into this. So this is Logan's Run, issue number two from Marvel Comics. Uh, The uh, cover date on this is February of 1977. It was actually on sale on the stands November 16th, 1976. Uh, Cover price on this was a whole 30 cents. Now, before we get into the cover proper, we have something new on the cover, starting with this issue that we didn't have on the first issue, which is box art. Now, for anybody that lived through the uh, 70s with Marvel Comics, you you remember the cool little corner box up in the left-hand corner that would have different box art for the different Marvel Comics. And issue one of Logan's Run didn't have have this, but all the other issues, I believe, uh, do have this, starting with this one. And it's it's cool. It's it's not my favorite corner box art, but it is really neat. It's um, it's a life clock, and strangely, it's cut kind of diagonally color wise, 
So where the left-hand corner is blue and then the right-hand corner is red, which is really weird because blue is not even a color for for the life clocks, which I just think is kind of an odd choice on that. And then there's a black silhouette of a man running, like down in the in the bottom portion of it. It's okay. I mean, it it it's you know interesting and all. I don't know that it really tells you much about it. It's cool that somewhere I I can't remember where I saw this, but somewhere there is a concept cover for an issue of Star Wars that one of the artists drew up like before they got all the cover copy and all that. And the, the logo box that they were using as a temporary logo box was this from Logan's run, as opposed to the one that they would eventually adopt uh, for star Wars. I, I can't remember where I saw that or, or what issue that is. It's probably issue one. I don't remember, but I just thought that was interesting that this was like the placeholder corner box art for star Wars while that was in concept phase. Well, I think this this particular thing, and it may not tell you a lot about what's going on inside the story, but it is. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it does show some a silhouette of somebody running. So I mean, I guess that kind of gives you the you know that aspect of it, and it just looks because of the the life clock, it looks science fictiony. Yeah. So I'll say it's effective in that regard. It, it is. I just I wonder if it would have worked better with. Um the hand or a hand like like on the splash page you know the opening splash page of the prior issue we had that like white silhouette of of a like a human hand not the big crystal hand but like a white silhouette of a hand with the life clock in the palm now mm-hmm. you you don't want to make the corner box too busy but i kind of wonder if maybe that would work like a like a hand with the life clock behind the silhouette of the guy running or something i don't know it's just I'm playing uh, armchair artist, I guess, but <laughs> it's it is interesting. And you're right; it it does say science fiction. Um, just that one image look is very science fictiony or, or cosmicy or whatever. Uh, anyway, continuing on, uh, the cover on this one is again by uh, George Perez and Al Milgram are the artists on it. And the cover on this now, it's funny how something can remind you of something that didn't exist at the time, but this cover reminds me so much of the cover to Star Wars issue two um, by Howard Chaikin and Tom Palmer. Now that is six months in the future from when this is published. So this is not like ripping that off or or anything like that. Uh, That cover hadn't happened yet, but that's what this cover reminds me of every time I see it, because it's a very similar thing. You know, on that cover for Star Wars, you've got uh, Luke and Ben Kenobi in the the creature cantina being attacked and uh, Luke's firing his gun and, you know, he's saying something like, you know, wave that lightsaber banner, we're finished, or something to that effect. This is a very similar cover because this scene doesn't actually happen in the the comic or in the movie the same way that that scene doesn't actually happen in Star Wars. But you've got um, Logan and Jessica being attacked by all these children. And Logan's saying, watch out, Jessica, these children have gone wild. And they're trying to kill us as he's firing his weapon multiple times in the air. So I, I just like, it's, it's, you know, it's that... Over the over the top, you know, overblown rhetoric, you know, as opposed to what we actually get in the movie. But at least this this scene is closer to events in the actual issue than than anything that happens in, in Star Wars number two. So, so now I, I like the layout of this cover. I don't like the uh, I don't like the way the children are drawn. First of all, it looks like the only. Uh, 
it, it looks like every one of them ha- is being drawn with like very very dark deep eyes in order to make them look yes. evil. Yes. Uh, second of all, they don't look like children to me. They look like just smaller adults, especially the gray-haired one in the upper left-hand corner who's <laughs> leaping down and right. to- tasseling, Lo- tasseling Logan's hair. <laughs> if it wasn't for... He looks Lo- like a leprechaun. He, he does. Yeah, he really does. If it wasn't for Logan actually saying these children on the cover... Uh, if, if I had no context for this, like if I hadn't seen the movie yet or anything like that, uh, I would think these were like trolls or, or you know, like you said, leprechauns is great because, yeah, you know, that, that kid, Billy, you know, the one with the headband and the knife, mm-hmm. uh, if you pointed his ears a little bit, he'd uh, actually look, you know, very like elfish or evil elf or orc or something, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, I agree with you. They don't look like children. Um, the guy, the, the two guys that are kind of right behind Logan's, uh, hand that's firing the gun. I mean, those, those look like Sal Buscema, like David Banner or, you know, Bruce Banner becoming the Hulk faces. You know, they don't, they don't look like kids. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, and you know, it's, it's a very common criticism. Uh, most artists don't draw children well. Right. It's it's a you know, like it's, it's a very common issue with with artists, you know, comic book artists in general. Uh, most of them just draw the just draw their traditional adult look in a smaller body. Uh, and like the only thing I see that they change sometimes is they make the head proportionately larger than they would on an adult, which I don't <laughs> see that they did here. Right. Uh, and then. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the Sal Buscema thing. The, I don't know if it's a girl or a boy, uh, but behind his left bicep, uh, the face there, that is that is almost <laughs> yeah. like prototypical Sal Buscema hair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree with you, you there. Know, that's, that's, that, that could be Sal Buscema's Rick Jones with long hair. <laughs> yeah, I definitely see that. Logan is drawn very well, though, just to finish the thought. Logan and, and Jessica, I think, are drawn very well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think they are very much so. Yeah, it's it's just the kids. They don't really work as kids. The, yeah, the, the layout of the shot is great. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the knife that the main kid is holding on to is very threatening looking. <laughs> nasty. Yeah, like a, I don't know, it's like a Klingon weapon or something. Yes. Yeah, this is very nasty looking. Um, getting into the interior of the book here. Uh, now, despite this being only the second issue, we already have a change-up in the credits that starts with this issue. So, Cathedral Kill is the title on this one. It was written by David Anthony Kraft. Now, he's listed here in the credits as simply David Kraft, but that's who it is, David Anthony Kraft. If you remember the old uh, comics interview magazine, that was, that was his baby. Um, now, the first issue, you may recall, was written by Jerry Conway. We will not see Conway back on this title again. Uh, I forget the whole story behind that. I was just reading about this not long ago, and I forget why Conway only did the first issue and then Kraft took over. But uh, Kraft would stay with the book through the rest of the adaptation of the film. Uh, he would not go on to the, the issues that go past the movie, though. The letters text page piece, now remember, they hadn't gotten letters yet, so they had to, you know, they always had to do filler uh, in the letters page until letters started to actually come in. The, the text piece in this issue is actually written by Kraft, and he explains how excited he is for this project. 
not the uh, not the least of which reason is that it actually reunites him with artist George Perez, whom he had previously worked with doing, wait for it, Man Wolf in uh, <laughs> Creatures on the Loose, starting with issue 33, which, Paul, if we haven't already covered that, we really need to cover it, because we've covered issues around that one, but I don't know if we've ever actually done 33. I don't think we have. I, I don't think we have either, and it wasn't until reading this that... I didn't realize that, you know, according to what Kraft says here, he says Man Wolf was, in fact, the very first color comic book series that either George Perez or I, uh, Kraft, had ever labored over, according to him. And I thought, oh, I, d- I didn't know that. So I-, I think that added some extra poignancy to, you know, to this project, but also now me wanting to go back in and cover that issue of, of Man Wolf. So anyway, I did a quick check because I always I always like to look at these sorts of things. So I did a quick check of their history, um, and it does seem to confirm that fact for Kraft because he had done um, a, a story for one of those Marvel black and white mags before Creatures on the Loose. But Perez's first listed credit is actually on uh, a backup story in Astonishing Tales number 25, which is actually the first uh, Deathlock story. Um, so I thought, well, that's weird. So I looked it up, and it's essentially just like a quick like two-page. It's not really a story. It's like a cartoony parody type thing that has Deathlock in it. So I don't really feel like Kraft is necessarily wrong in his, in his recollection or in his assertion that, you know, that uh, Creatures on the Loose number 33 was, was their first thing. But anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. So anyway, art credits are, once again, George Perez. And then inks and colors uh, are by Klaus Jansen. And I don't think Jansen did. Let me look back here real quick. I don't think he did the colors. Uh, No, he did not. It was somebody else whose name I can't make out here. Oh, Marie Severin. Marie Severin did the colors in the first issue. This issue, uh, it's, uh, it's Jansen doing both the inks and the colors. And I can't help but wonder if that owes into my enjoyment on this because I, I really like this. Um, there's a lot of great use of, uh, what is that called, the du- duo shade or whatever? Um, oh, Zipatone? Zipatone, that's it. Yeah, Zipatone, because the metal looks like metal and, and things like I really like you know how things are shaded and colored. And, yeah, I, it's, really it's was, I was really impressed with the shot. If you look at Logan and then to the right of him is his reflection on the wall. Yes, yeah. I thought that was a very impressive effect there. Yeah, that actually happens a couple times in this, because there's a a sequence, I'll try to point it out when we get to it later, there's a sequence in here later that you, honestly, it's the reflection uh, of Logan that helps the narrative go forward. So I I thought that was actually really cool. Uh, Anyway, the other credits are letterer uh, is Joe Rosen, and editor on this is Archie Goodwin. The time is the 24th third century and the situation is desperate logan five uh fresh from his debriefing with computer storms into the hydro toner area of sandman headquarters in urgent need of counsel from his friend and fellow sandman francis seven he finds francis lounging in a jacuzzi and his friend tells him uh to take it easy and to stop straining his brain about matters that don't concern them but logan is concerned Shaken by events from last issue and starting to seriously question his personal beliefs, Logan asked Francis point-blank if he's ever actually seen anyone renewed. 
Francis is evasive and tells his friend to quit asking silly questions and hop in the water while there's still time before starting the long shift that lays ahead of them. Besides, partner, says Francis, why worry about renewing when you're only 25? Relax, you've still got five years ahead of you until termination. I find this interesting because in the last issue, Logan clearly states that he's 26 years old and that last issue ended with him uh, lamenting his lost four years. So suddenly he's gained an extra year or lost an extra year in in this particular issue. I'm not sure what's going on there. I guess Kraft just wasn't paying attention or something. So anyway, uh, with that, Francis dips under the water, cutting off the discussion. Frustrated and lost in his own thoughts and inner turmoil, Logan is suddenly blindsided in a scene not in the film by a huge medicine ball that's good-naturedly hurled at him by fellow Sandmen who are working out and and wish for him to join them, uh, if he's got the time. Catching a glimpse of his now-flashing life clock, and after a beautifully rendered full-page splash of Logan reminiscing about events thus far, which serves to nicely bring any reader, such as my younger self, uh, who missed the first issue, quickly and completely up to speed. Logan thrusts the ball back at his chums and screams, No time! I've got no time at all! (laughs) Which feels like me a lot of the time. Uh, Which is suspicious in no way at all. Now, I do really like this DVD extra, though, um, particularly for the narration box comment that Logan is, quote unquote, keenly aware that in a few short hours, his fellow Sandmen shall be his enemies. I thought that was a nice touch. Returning to his apartment and in yet another bonus scene, we see Logan using this weird Cerebro-esque machine that he refers to as an image locator to somehow summon Jessica Six. She arrives and is initially quite annoyed at being brought to him against her will and reminds him that she isn't interested in his sexual advances. He tells her that's not the reason, and then, without any pretense, he tells her flat out that this is his last day and that he's going to run. She doesn't believe him at first, but a look at his flashing life clock seems to sway her a bit. Now do you believe me, he pleads. What do you care what I believe, Logan? Because you know something, he says, holding up the onk. You're wearing one of these, and I believe you can show me how to seek sanctuary. She professes ignorance, and he pleads with her. Look, I may have been a salmon, but I was only doing my job. It's different now. It's my life. Do you understand? My life. He begs for her help, and she reluctantly agrees to try, but, quote-unquote, can't promise you anything. And she leaves. Logan follows her, unseen, to where she meets with a group of friends in a public mall and discusses the situation with them. They don't trust Logan, particularly because he's a Sandman, and having heard of Sanctuary makes him a danger to all of us. A plot is quickly hatched for Jessica to lure Logan to Arcade Station tonight, where it is made quite clear that they will take care of Logan once and for all. Again, Jessica reluctantly agrees. Later, Jessica leads Logan to the prearranged spot, which in this adaptation seems much less populated and theoretically conducive to an actual murder plot than the same but much, much more crowded locale that's in the film. In this, the would-be attacker actually gets right up behind Logan and is about to lower a cord around his neck to strangle him when his transceiver goes off, alerting him to a female runner in Cathedral. Come on, let's go, and he pulls her along with him, although in the film he tries to send her home and she actually chooses to go with him, which I feel is an important distinction. 
The conspirators have overheard all of this, and they decide to follow. Back at Sandman headquarters, Francis observes Logan's assignment, and as a fellow Sandman was badly injured in the same quadrant last issue, quickly leaves to go assist his partner, and we get a nice bit of dialogue from another couple of Sandmen commenting on how Logan and Francis, uh, you know, they have this great friendship, and that, uh, quote-unquote, they're also the best Sandmen we've got. Back to Logan and Jessica, waiting on a maze car when she accuses him of being a hypocrite and an assassin. Logan explains that if he doesn't go, they'll simply just send someone else. They whisk away down the tunnel, and the conspirators hoist a woman out of another car to quickly pursue. On the way to Cathedral, Logan and Jessica discuss the nature of cubs who live there in Cathedral and why they're so savage. Uh, Jessica wonders if it's because they're born in breeders, despite everybody being born in breeders, uh, but not nurtured by human mothers. An alert warns them that they are entering a personal risk area. They exit into an area that is clearly not part of the pristine utopia that we've seen up till now. It is worn and cracked and overgrown and full of Perez rubble. Stay behind me, Jessica, Logan says. The cubs are shut in beyond that door with good reason. When they're flying on muscle, there's no way to control them. Muscle, she asks, is that a drug? It's unauthorized. It's no good for anyone over 16, though. It would shake you and me to pieces. They warily enter the dark and spooky cathedral and are immediately set upon by the feral, dangerous children. Overwhelmed by their sheer numbers, Logan and Jessica are held for Billy, the leader, who informs them that he's the one who cut up a Sandman real good yesterday. Logan tries to psych the boy out by telling him he feels sorry for him and what will happen when Billy, obviously an older boy, turns 16 and his fellow cubs rip his guts out. Billy, unfazed, tries to force muscle on Logan, but he manages to shake off his attackers and retrieve his gun. Now, I love this scene, but I do miss the fact that it does not feature one of my absolute favorite lines from the film where Logan brandishes his weapon and asks the Cubs, how many of you want this to be last day? I love that. Uh, But there is a great alternate version uh, of the same scene where Logan asks, what's the difference if your last day comes now or when uh, your play pals rip your guts out at age 16? Either way, it's a dead end, Billy. Yeah, Billy answers. Well, so is your society, Sandman, only you rip the guts out of anyone over 30. Logan's half-hearted response of, that's different, clearly shows his wavering convictions. The cubs disperse. Uh, Logan proceeds to find the scared and shaking female runner, and she pleads for her life. Please, Sandman, she says, I'm not ready to die yet. I haven't had time to live. It isn't fair. No, it isn't, he says, and shows her his own flashing life clock. He gives her the onk, which she does not recognize, and a gas pellet, which he hopes may help her if she's in danger of being caught. Jessica and Logan wish her good luck and leave, but they, they no sooner arrive at the maze car station when they hear her desperate cry of, please, and then no. So believing that the cubs have gotten to her, Logan and Jessica are saddened by the runner's demise, and Logan comments that what used to be something he'd have laughed about hearing uh, now sickens him. They are observed by the conspirators who note how chummy Jessica seems to be with Logan now and say that if she's turned traitor, they'll simply kill both of them. And on the last page, a glorious full-page splash, we see Francis standing over the splayed, broken, burning body of the female runner. 
reporting his kill to Sandman headquarters and wondering to himself why his partner, his friend, let this runner go. And if Logan has become a rebel, he just may have to kill him himself. Next, Lair of Laser Death. You know, the first thing that jumps out at me is the last thing, which we already mentioned for a moment. Uh, that that last uh, splash page of Francis with the dead runner. Very, very dramatic. Well drawn. Uh, and, and it's interesting because the art style, and I know we talked about it with the first issue, but the art style, the Klaus Janssen inking on George Perez's pencils, it's contrary to what I would expect because George Perez is, is got a, has got a very clean style. Klaus Janssen's got a much, much more muddy style. Right. Uh, and I would think for a futuristic story of this nature, uh, this, I mean, it is a dystopian tale, but it's also a dystopian tale in a very slick, futuristic area. And you would think Perez's clean style would work really, really well with that, and that Jansen would bring it down because Jansen is more for, you know, a film noir type atmosphere or a, you know, a Planet of the Apes type futuristic thing. Right. Not so, not so much a slick Logan's Run future. And yet it works so well on here and it's, it, it goes very contrary to what I would expect because I, you know, like I said, I would just think it would not have the right feel for it, especially having seen, you know, having seen, uh, George Perez inked by, you know, people who would do a much cleaner thing. And, and, you know, my, my gut feeling would be that would work much better for this. But this works so well. It's it really just surprises me. And you know, you, we mentioned earlier, or you mentioned, you know, some of the the work with Zipatone and and uh, you know, just various methods that he used to make it look futuristic and shiny. And uh, you know, it, it all just really plays so well in this book. It does. The art is is beautiful. And that's probably you know, if I, if I had a number one note, that's probably my number one note. Is just the art. The art is beautiful in this. Um, this is where I discovered George Perez as a kid. So if you want to run with more notes, feel free, because there, there's a bit of a story behind this that I want to go into, but I don't, I don't want to bogart the notes section either. Sure. So. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll hit on a few things, and then I'll let you run. Uh, first thing that jumped out at me is the, the gym. Uh, the guy who's on the splash page all the way to the left, what the hell is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it, it looks like in the middle of a weightlifting room, he's doing some sort of a gymnastics thing. Uh, and, and it looks very dangerous because they're all kind of on top of each other. So right. it, it, it's like, no, that's you. You wouldn't be doing that. there. That's no way. Second of all, their, their futuristic weightlifting outfits just look weird to me. Um, <laughs> Francis is in a, you know, what, what appears to be a hot tub that looks more like it should be in a resort than a gym. But that's you know futuristic, so that's fine. I would love to know where this was, where this sequence here was filmed, because I'm thinking this is probably a gym in a mall somewhere. Because mm. much of the movie was in a shopping mall when shopping malls were kind of a new concept, so they looked futuristic. Yeah, well, because uh, they were all brand new structures. Yeah. Now I did a. This is how nerdy I'm being with this uh, project because it's it's so personal to me, but. 
I did a side by side comparison of this opening splash page with the movie. And it's pretty close, except for that. I don't know what that thing to Logan's, it would be to our right, his left, that that yellow bar thing. I don't know what that is. That's not in the movie. But everything else here is the gym looks different inside. The people are working out in a different way in, in the actual film. So we don't but have the gymnastics here, guy. No, no. Uh, and I don't even remember, do, are their outfits the, the same as this? Um, you know, I, I don't remember. I, I don't think they are, but I really don't remember what they that, look that, like. That yellowish goldish bar that you're talking about, I can't tell if it's supposed to have like dots on it, that it's just kind of like a pattern that's on the bar, or if there's supposed to be like liquid flowing through it. That's kind of what I was thinking, like something's flowing through it, you know, like a, almost like a lava lamp or something, mm-hmm. but I'm not entirely sure on that. I think it's just supposed to look, you know space agey and futuristic and but it's cool it's neat because it's something that uh is added in i'm presuming that perez just would have added it in on his own um because it is not um it's not part of the scene now if i'm remembering my history on this right because again i was reading about this not long ago um perez got source material to use yet it was like slides and he didn't have a slide viewer, so he would have to actually look at it through like a like a special lens. It was almost like looking at Viewmasters or something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, often things would look close but off. Um, that's why headquarters looks or like the the computer debriefing area looks close but not the same because he didn't realize that there were reflections and, and things like that. So the space looks a little bit different than it actually really looked in the movie. But this this is pretty damn close. I mean, the angle is exactly the same. The the bars that you see going into the jacuzzi and then into the pool behind him, uh, they're actually there in the movie and everything. So it's, it's pretty close. It's just, it's really that big yellow thing, whatever that is, that big gold tube or bar or whatever that's not there in the movie which um i i think it actually looks cooler this way well yeah and i think that's the whole purpose is okay i'm going to stick this bar here that just says futuristic right it's not something you'd have if if you went went to the gym so we're going to put it there and then when they show him walking he walks by it it's still there on uh the second page yeah the middle of the second page when there's the shot looking down that bar is still there uh these two jerks who throw the ball at him. Uh, <laughs> first, first of all, you know we we get that, and then there's the very very creative and artistic flashback page. I love that page. Yes, that's it's yeah. so so well done that that the flashback is actually in five panels within the medicine ball, which is not drawn to scale compared to the size of where, that it looks in the other panels, but that's forgivable. Uh, and then they get annoyed. He's walking. They throw a medicine ball at him unannounced. He throws it back at them very hard, and they're mad at him for doing it. What the hell is that about? <laughs> I don't He's know. the one who should be mad. He should go over and punch him in the face after they throw the ball like that. I'm trying to remember if my, if my disc, because I was watching it uh, – digitally on the computer earlier 
I'm wondering if my actual disc of this has bonus features or I know that there's like a documentary on there, but I don't I don't remember ever seeing any like deleted scenes or, or anything. So I'm wondering some of this DVD extra stuff that we've got in the comic adaptation, like this scene with the with the other Sandman in the gym. I'm wondering was this actually filmed or is this just stuff like I'm wondering what the source material is that that Conway before him and then Kraft are using for this adaptation. Is it an earlier script? Is it the shooting script? Um, is it having gone to see the movie once? You know what? How are they telling this story? And uh, I'd be really curious to know exactly, uh, you know, what the what the sequence is because it's neat. Both the the extra things that come in, but then it's also interesting in a lot of ways the stuff from the film that doesn't make it into the comic too. You know, there's not near as much of that I don't feel, but there is an awful lot of stuff as we go through this that uh, that is extra to what was in the film, which I like. That's one of the big reasons I always liked these Marvel adaptations. So we get, we get the uh, the Sanctuary crew and. Uh I don't know if you, if, if you remember, like, I saw the, the one woman uh, who made me think of Mary Jane Watson at first. But if you look at her more careful, if you remember her, she reminds me of Bethany Cabe from Iron Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking uh, I was thinking Perez's Black Widow, but you're right. Yeah, Bethany Cabe is a good call. Yeah, she really does look like her. And clear, clearly their, their preferred method of, uh, of assassination is garroting. It's totally wanted to in the whole thing, uh, and it's almost like a comic, se- a, a, not comic, comedy sequence when when they're reaching up behind him with it, and then he gets called away, and it's like, damn, <laughs> they, they they can't get him, and then they run away with it. Uh, I, I don't know, it just just seems a little bit almost like it's almost comical for a moment there. It is, but it's, I think it's more believable in this because again reviewing the movie um it looks for all the world like they're going to try to kill him right there in the middle of arcade uh in broad daylight you know so to speak uh right there by the hand i mean if you watch that scene in the movie there's there's like there's got to be a couple hundred people milling about uh, including other sandmen um now i don't remember in i'm flipping back through the pages real quick i don't see another Sandman in this sequence where he follows her to wherever this is, well, to arcade. Mm-hmm. Um, this entire sequence, I don't see another Sandman, but in the movie, there's, there's at least one other. I want to say there's several of them about, but I know that there's at least one because on the upper floor, when uh, it's not shown here in the comic, they go straight from Jessica being with her friends to her hanging out with Logan by this like aquarium looking thing. But in the movie, she you, we see her go from her friends to a scene of her on the upper level walking along to the door to Logan's apartment. And she walks right past a Sandman who's just kind of leaning against the wall. So they were just they were actually going to try to kill him right right out in public like that. I mean, it just yeah, that it seems a little unlikely. Yeah. So it's actually. It's actually better here in the adapt. At least it's more believable in here in the adaptation that because uh, it makes it look like they're the only ones around. Like it's Logan, Jessica, and these two tops are the only ones 
about in this particular. They're they're not going to do it right in front of the hand, which is just silly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, realistically, luring him somewhere where they can't be seen would have been a much smarter plan. But whatever. They move on to Cathedral, uh, where they meet up with the Cubs. And unfortunately, I don't think they're drawn much better in here than they are on the cover. They still look like elves or, you know, some sort of... They almost look like they're out of some sort of fantasy uh, story, not a science fiction story. Yeah, I, I can see that. The first, I think the first... I'm sorry, it's not the first one. It's on page 22. It's the last panel on page 22. You've got the girl latching on to Jessica, and then I presume that's a boy right beside. I think they look pretty good. I, I think they look better than the cover, but I definitely see what you're saying. Billy, to me, gives me a serious Peter Pan vibe uh, in, in this whole One of the sequence. Lost Boys? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Lost Boys, which maybe that's intentional, because these are lost children for all intents and purposes. That's That's not a bad comparison, and that might make it a little better. Right. Now I'm thinking not I'm now you know obviously not like a Disney Peter Pan but more like 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 Rufio or something from you know from like Hook you know where they were they were much more feral which again fits very nicely with this. Yeah, well they'd have to be. Is Billy actually wearing? No, I guess he's not. I noticed in this that Logan has these weird like cuffs like metal cuffs at the ends of his sleeves. Mm -hmm. And I just noticed that Billy has one on one arm, but it's not the same. Cause I was thinking, are, are they implying like he took this off of the other Sandman or something, but it's, it's not the same kind. It's just, it's more like a, almost like a gauntlet type of thing. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I would want to interpret it that way. Honestly. Yeah. That, that he took it as a trophy. So we move on and we confront the runner. Uh, this is, I thought this this is well well done here. Just, I mean, similar in the movie, but uh, you know the whole just the whole thing. And and I like the sequence, the four panel sequence where they just come closer and closer and closer to her yeah. uh, until we have the extreme close up of her eye. Uh, you know, which is showing kind of impending doom. I think that's kind of a cinematic effect there. That works really well because the the one thing the movie has got that no matter how good this adaptation, any adaptation ever is, the one thing that, that no adaptation can ever have is a musical score. Um, I, I think that's, you know, if there is any shortcoming of, say, like the Star Wars adaptation or, or of this adaptation, it's that you don't get the music. And one of my favorite musical cues in Logan's Run, it's a very, very short one, but it's very Jaws-esque. And that's where Logan and Jessica walk away from the runner. You know, they basically wish her well. Logan's done what he can for her. And they're, they walk away and they're no sooner out of the shot. Then you hear dun 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 dun, and it ramps up, and it's again very Jaws-like, and it's Francis advancing on her, and then he calls her, and when she turns around, he shoots. Runner. No. 
Runner terminated at 016. Ready for cleanup, Cathedral Quadrant 39. I don't know that that would really work as well in the adaptation. I think doing it this way, where you see her, and as you say, it focuses in tighter and tighter to where it finally focuses in on her eye. I think that's a really clever way to do it. I don't know that it's better. I I still prefer the one in the movie, but this is an interesting way to do it. And it's cool because it doesn't, you don't know what it is. It's not so you flip the page. And I think that's one of the reasons that turning the page in this is the gut punch that it is, because you don't know what killed her. We do have a moment where the, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if the dialogue works with what we see. Because Logan and Jessica are standing outside of the room with the runner. There's the two uh, sanctuary people looking on. Right. And then he says, did you hear that scream? He just murdered another runner. And Jessica's more friendly than ever. So it doesn't make it clear. Obviously, you can kind of piece it together yourself that they only just caught view of them just now. After the yell. Right. But but it makes it seem like they've been watching them the whole time. So if you're watching the whole time, you know he didn't kill them. You know, so it, it's just, I think it could have just been put together just slightly better there. Right. And then we come to the very dramatic splash page of Francis having killed the runner. And, you know, what what I like about it is clearly, you know, where he shot her is actually in flames. But she's there among all this broken wood, and it almost looked like, it does, it almost looks like she's been impaled, even though yeah. she hasn't. Yeah. But I just think it's very, very, you know, it is a very dramatic shot. It's a very daring and risque shot, too, because I remember reading, um, wherever I was reading this, and it, was, it had to be Back Issue magazine, I'm presuming, but wherever I was reading the, the basically the, the story of the making of, you know, this whole adaptation, um, they it, it what this was commented on very specifically that uh, I guess there was some concern uh, with editorial of, you know, should they actually print this um, to kind of paint a picture for the listeners who may not have ever seen this. It's Francis standing over this woman's body. Now she is kind of splayed backwards to where she's facing us like she's looking towards us. Uh, with her head upside down, so she's just kind of splayed over this crate or table or whatever this is. Her mouth is open, her eyes are wide, and she's a very busty girl who's about to just kind of pop out of the top of her her little outfit here. And so I think it's a weird... Um, it reminds me of like those old ECs, you know, to where I think they really very well understood back in those days the 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 edge between sex and violence, like that, you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. that whole kind of weird fetishy type of thing, because this kind of plays to that a little bit. You know, you've got some serious side boobage here. Um, she's a very well endowed girl. She's you know, her, the way her open mouth is and her lips and all, it's a very sexualized image, I feel. Yet it's obvious that she's dead, 
um, both with the trickle of blood, you know, the staring eyes. She's got flames coming out of her midsection, for God's sake. So it's it, it makes it that much more horrific somehow. And it is truly a horrific image. And this one has stuck with me my my whole life. Um, but this is a beautiful splash page. I mean, it's it's an incredible piece of art, I think. Picture that same image. Look at it and just in your mind, take away the color, make it black and white. And it's an EC comic image. Yeah, yeah. That could easily translate to black and white. I wonder if I have this. I, I have a lot of pages, you know, like from around the Internet and stuff that, I, that I've seen. You know, not that I own or anything, but, you know, images from around the net of bl- the black and white pages from this adaptation. I wonder if I have that page. I would have to go through there. If, if I do, I'll try to remember to post that up uh, on our Facebook page when we start putting these episodes up. But I, I know I do have a lot of black and white images from this adaptation. I just don't remember if I have that one. I'd like to see that if you do. And that's that's the end of issue two. Any more notes? Yeah, I've got some notes on this one. First and foremost, this issue uh, means a lot to me personally, and there, there's kind of a little story behind that. So my maternal grandmother, my grandma federally, as I was growing up as a kid, she, she lived all alone in this little apartment. Her husband, my grandfather, had died when I was very, very young. I, I don't really remember him. And you know, all her kids were grown and everything. So when I would go visit my grandma, she had this closet in her house where she had stuff that was meant for when the grandkids visited. And she would never. She would let you play with it all you wanted to, but you could never take anything home because she wanted it specific. She wanted there to be things at Grandma's house that were associated with going to be at Grandma's house. And I remember there was like this little McDonald's playset, which was really cool, and you know all these different things. And there were a few comics, and the only ones I can remember anymore are. I remember there was a Superman number three hundred one, which is I know we've covered on the show. It's the one where Superman fights uh, Solomon Grundy by Garcia Lopez. Great issue. And look, for some reason, Logan's run number two. And I I have no idea where my grandmother got these. I don't know if they were from my uncles uh, or why. I don't remember any of my uncles reading comics or, or having any comics or passing me down any comics or what. But somehow or other, these comics were at her house. And the fact that I don't really have any emotional attachment to the cover on this issue makes me think that it must have been coverless. Because I just don't remember the cover at all. But damn, do I remember this opening splash page. I just I remember just reading this thing a million times. Like every time I'd go to my grandmother's house, I was always digging this issue out and looking through it. And I no longer remember which came first for me, the adaptation or the movie. But I think the adaptation must have come first because rereading this issue, there's a lot of stuff that you learn in this adaptation that informs the movie but is not part of the movie per se like muscle muscle is just mentioned offhandedly in the movie but in this adaptation logan explains what muscle is and i remember watching the movie because the first time i ever watched it that i can remember anyway was was when it was on tv like it you know, like regular tv so you know they censored out the nudity and some of that stuff damn i i remember not 
I remember understanding what muscle was and, and that it would, it would have a bad effect on Logan if he breathed it. So the only way I would have known that is if I'd read the adaptation first, I, I'm, I'm thinking. So I'm pretty sure this must have come first and, and greatly informed you know me about the movie and, and just added that much more to my love of the movie. But you know, just revisiting this again just reminds me so much of my grandmother, who unfortunately is not with us anymore. So yeah, it's, it just gives me the warm fuzzies. But anyway, love, love, love the art on this. It, it's just beautiful. Just you know, from from page to page, from panel to panel, there, there's not any of this that I don't love. And there's some of it that uh, that I think is is absolutely stunning. The page page three is brilliant. I mean. I missed the first issue as a kid. I, you know, this was where I came into the story and I never felt like I, like I was lost because page three gives you everything you need to know to jump into this story. And it's all done in one page. And honestly, just in, what is it? Five panels in the middle of this ball that he's holding tells you everything you need to know about the story so far. It's, it's a brilliant way to sum it up. And uh, I, I think it's just it's really, really masterfully done. See, I, I had picked this up as it came out. So I had issue, you know, I had the first issue already. Uh, so I wasn't dependent on that sequence to understand what was going on. I just thought it was brilliant because it's just a terrific piece of art. It's a terrific way to convey uh you know, what's gone on to this point. And I've seen plenty of books where they've had flashback sequences, you know, what's what happened in the last issue that have been done in three, four, five panels. So, you know, you don't need to dedicate a tremendous amount of space to it. Uh, but just, again, just from, from an artistic, pleasing to the eye point of view, it's just really, really well done. And I think right. it's brilliant in that respect. Absolutely. One of these days, one of these days, it is a very, very fond wish of mine to get this issue signed by, by Perez himself and to be able to, to, you know, hopefully without sounding weird or something, explain to him, you know, how much this issue has meant to me all these years. I have an, an issue one signed. It wasn't personally signed to me. I, I bought it, you know, with the signature already on it. But one of these days, I really want to get a... I think these guys understand that when you when you start telling them something like that, I think they've heard it enough that they have a familiarity with it. Right. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, when I met with Jerry Conway uh, and I talked to him. We talked a little bit about the death of Gwen Stacy. We talked a little bit about the Punisher uh, because, you know, everybody, I think, has to talk to him about those things. But I talked to him about how Spider-Man 131 was my first collecting issue. I had read some comics before that, but there was never, you know, for whatever reason, the day I picked that up was the day I became a comic collector. And I talked to him about it and just the weirdness of the, uh, you know, Aunt May marrying Doc Ock and all of that stuff. And and I think they're used to hearing it, and I think they enjoy hearing it. When, when, they, when you say something about them having made an impression on your childhood, a positive impression, you know, unless you're dead inside, I think it's got to make you feel really good. I would hope so. I would really, really hope so. Because, yeah, you know, it, it should. They should be very proud of themselves in that aspect, you know. 
Uh, especially the thing about Jerry Conway that I always found interesting, and I did, I, I had commented it at one point on Facebook, and then I had commented when I met him in person, and and he seemed to get a kick out of it. Was you know he was very young when he started writing comics, so I think he was you know like in his late teens, early twenties. Uh, so like when the issue when when I started collecting, I think I was probably like twelve, and he was probably like nineteen. So it's like, you know, it, it really pisses me off that he's not so much older than me now, you know, <laughs> and he, he's, he's, you know, his response is something like, give it time, you're going to pass me up. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> he, he seemed to get a big kick out of that. <laughs> One of the things that, that I do lament a little bit about this, uh, the adaptation, and I'm not sure how you could really do it um, in, you know, on the written page necessarily, but there's several little looks, and, it, and it's not just in this one issue. I mean, it's it's through the whole movie, but there's several little looks that are given by different characters. And I really noticed it in this issue in particular. Uh, I'll give you a, a for instance. So this opens with Logan going to see Francis, you know, in the gym. Now, in the movie, this seems a little bit longer and the dialogue's a little bit different. Um, but Francis does essentially the same thing. Eventually, he, he's kind of tired of this discussion, and he just ducks under the water to uh, avoid the discussion, and Logan leaves. Well, in the movie, the scene goes a little bit longer, and he eventually reemerges from the water. Logan is gone, and he just has this look on his face. And there's no dialogue or anything, but the look on his face tells you everything you need to know, that he's concerned about his friend, that, you know, in in, in Francis's words, he's sculling out too much. He's starting to, to think, and thinking slows you down, as he keeps saying through the, you know, the course of this story. He's worried that, that Logan's asking the wrong questions, or maybe asking the right questions. And I, I miss that aspect to this, because Francis... I think is a very interesting character and I don't know that he's ever been really explored enough because as we're going to see over the course of this, he much like Logan is also going to have to directly confront uh, everything he's ever been taught or learned or, you know, his, his convictions and his confrontation with that's going to be very different from Logan's. And that's part of what makes that character fascinating to me is that, they're going to wind up in very different places going through essentially the, the same, the same scenarios, the same stimuli. And, and I find that just really interesting. Uh, I wish we'd gotten a, 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 a bit more glimmer of this, although we do get that on the last page, you know, we do see that Francis is aware that Logan let the runner go and this bothers him. See, I, I think Francis, the way I interpret his character is I don't see him as part of the evil problem, even when he's pursuing Logan. I see him more as a don't ask questions because you're not going to want to know the answers kind right. of guy. Right. You know, just, just follow the rules and you're going to live a comfortable life. And that's all I care about. I'm not going to worry about interpreting what, what, whether it's right or wrong or anything of that nature. Unfortunately, it's not part of this adaptation, but in the movie, when Logan asks him directly, have you ever seen anyone renew? And he presses him on it. Francis does give an answer. He actually says, yeah, yeah, sure I have. And 
Logan, you know, I, you know, continues to kind of grill him a little bit. Well, it, was it anybody that we knew? And you can see, you know, there, there's just a great bit of, of acting from, you know, that actor that he's, he's, he doesn't really want to talk about it. He doesn't want to discuss it. And I wonder, does he not even want to think about it? And it's made me think a lot about this character. So does he not want to think about it or has he thought about it? And he's come to the conclusion, this is just the way it is. And I'm going to follow orders. I'm going to do what I need to do. And when it's my time, it's my time. Maybe he doesn't really believe in renewal, which is why he's kind of dismissive, you know, with Logan about it when he just says, yeah, sure. I've, you know, I've seen people renew, but when he's pressed, well, who did you see? He, he can't give an answer. And so again, I, it just, it makes me really fascinated with that character. Why is he, why is he saying that? Is it just one of those things like, yeah, sure. I believe, but, you know, does he really, or he's just kind of, he, he doesn't want to think about it or he has thought about it and he just decides I'm not going to let it bother me. I, I think he has decided he's not going to think about it yet. Yeah, he's convinced himself people have renewed and that he's going to renew. And you know what? I got five more years before it's my turn anyway. So why am I, why am I thinking about this? I'm only going to cause problems for myself. Let me just move on and do what I'm going to do and live the very comfortable life I live. Right. That's that's right. the way I see Francis. So if if he's a villain in any way, uh, he's a villain because he doesn't care to be more than he is or to be better than he is. Right. But he's not a villain because he has evil intentions or that he's vicious or anything like that. He just wants to go about his business, live his comfortable life and move on. <laughs> that's That's at least how I see him. Now, here's something I don't know that I ever really thought about before really digging into this adaptation. But between Logan uh, telling Jessica that he was just doing his job and um, Francis saying, you know, our shift starts pretty soon. It got me to thinking they actually work. Sandman actually have a job. Do the other people in this world work? Do they have jobs? Do they fill? I think they do. I think they have to, you know, somebody has to be providing services around, you know, in, in their world. So I assume that they do. I never really thought about it before. It makes you wonder, like, what did Jessica do, for example, or, you know, these other ones? I, I guess I guess you're right, because, you know, we do in the next issue, we're going to meet some people who clearly have a job. So, yeah, I guess they must work uh, and, and do something to contribute to the society. But it's just it's curious, you know, what what would those roles be? And like, again, with Jessica, you know, what was her role? What did she do uh, for a living, per se? The uh, image locator is interesting because the, the movie doesn't address this at all. It just goes from the gym scene to Logan's apartment when she shows up. So basically skipping, you know skipping that whole sequence, but this thing is just, it's freaky. You know, why would it need to have as many screens as it does? And like, we have a screen, one screen for him thinking up her hairstyle. Then there's another screen where she looks like Ilea. Cause it's, I guess it's to get her face, but she doesn't have any hair. And then there's a screen we can't see. And then there's a screen of like her as she is. Well, there's just, the one screen is, it looks like it's just hair. Right, yeah. So there's, he, one, he, so there's one just hair, one just face, and then with a combination of hair and face. 
So it's, yeah, it's pulling these images together to make one complete image of what she looks like. And then what does it do then? It beams her there. It sends out an APB. <laughs> how does that work? You know, how does she, how does this machine help him get her there? That it's never really explained. It almost looks like it's like a cross between Cerebro and a, and a speeder bike because he's actually holding onto something that almost looks like handlebars or something. It's really freaky looking. I just thought that was weird. And again, it's one of those things that makes me wonder, you know, was this something from the film that just didn't make it in? Was this filmed or, or, you know, just concept stuff? Um, I do like the sequence with Logan and Jessica in his apartment. Um, but the dialogue is, is changed up quite a bit. And again, I don't feel like the adaptation sells well enough her, I'm trying to think of how to word it. Like in the movie, she, she kind of vacillates back and forth between believing him and not believing him, wanting to help him and not wanting, like, you know what I mean? It, it's mm-hmm. her, her, doubtfulness i don't know if that's the best word for it but that's the word that comes to mind yeah but i i think that makes it more believable because you know the fact that she has those doubts because if she just automatically okay i've met him i like him i believe everything he has to say it's like oh you know that's a little quick <laughs> so i think that you know having having, having some doubts is, is a positive uh way to show this story right and in, in this I mean, there there are moments, you know, little things like when he's about to be strangled. She she clearly she's she says, I'm sorry. And clearly it, it shows that she is sorry. But I'm presuming she's going along with this because she agrees with the conspirators that they just can't take a chance on him. Right. At least um, at this point, I think until he frees the runner, I think that's what convinces her. Right. But that's one of the things that I've always really liked with the film is that it's not just instantly believing him, but also Logan himself, I feel in the movie, um, I feel is illustrated a, a little more. He, he's a he's a little more. I'm trying to think of the word to use. Like, I think when he first starts his run, he's he's thinking it's a mission like he's almost sold on the mission yeah he he may be risking those four you know getting those four years but i think he's he's i don't think he's honestly looking at instantly becoming a, becoming a runner i don't i think he's actually looking at it as a mission but as it goes on he become he actually becomes what he's selling to jessica that he i don't know it would be more we, we should probably look into that more you know starting with the next issue because i think that's where that idea starts to solidify but there's some differences um between both the adaptation and the film that i, I think would be worth looking at in that aspect in that regard i think he has his own doubts right from the start and we, i think we see it more in the movie than in the uh, comic where he's like i get these years back right i get them back right right, right he immediately yeah. starts having some concerns right Absolutely. I do in the in the interaction between them and in his apartment, though, I really do miss the line uh, of hers that I think really illustrates this whole situation a little better. Uh, She in the movie, she says, I've never heard of a a Sandman running ever. And that's not in here. And I like that line because I think that adds a certain weight to what's happening here. 
that he, you know, he's doing something that's just, it's taboo. It's, this has never happened before. You know, Sandman don't do this. Um, that's not really illustrated, you know, in this. Flipping to page 11, just those first two panels, uh, I like this. I mean, Perez does a beautiful job here with uh, with this futuristic, you know, mall atmosphere and all. But he, you know, he gives us this like aquarium pool pond thing uh, that's really neat. That's not in the film, and it's just really cool. It's a it's a really nice visual that I thought was interesting. And I think we have to give some of the credit on that one to Jansen as well, because I'm thinking, oh yeah, the, the inking added to it as well. Absolutely. Now, this was interesting. On page 16, when they go to the maze station, the maze car station, Logan hits the button for Cathedral. What does that third thing say? You've got Arcade, you've got Cathedral. The bottom one says Sandman, and I'm presuming Sandman HQ. Looks like New York. (laughs) That's what I thought. Why would there be one that says New York? Because... Because once you, as long as you have New York, it's real. It's a real world. <laughs> I'm wondering if it's supposed to say New You, but why would that one venue have its own? You know what I mean? Because it's just like a shop. It's it's not like a vent. You know, like these other places are like big venues. Yeah, no, I, it, it it actually doesn't make sense. I'm thinking they had just had something to put in there, and I'm thinking. That may not have even been Perez. That may have been Jansen. It might have even been whoever lettered the book. Right, Joe Rosen, yeah. But it it, it really does, because you, you see clearly the word new, and then space, and then Y-O, and that sure looks like it's an R, that next one, but it's kind of obscured by the inks. So it looks to me like it's supposed to say New York, and that just seems really weird, because... You know, I, I don't know that we ever learn exactly where the Dome City is, but it's got to be somewhere fairly close to Washington, D.C., just given, you know, how, how events play out with this. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else? Oh, um, this is one of my bigger notes here. I'm curious what you think about this. So, I think one of the reasons I always liked both this issue but also this sequence of the movie is that you start to see cracks in Utopia, if you know what I mean. So earlier we had the scene with the conspirators. And and again, I think it's illustrated a little bit better in the movie. But we get a taste of it here that, you know, there's clearly this little underground thing happening here where these people are talking about sanctuary they're planning to run um they don't want to be part of the status quo they clearly they want to live beyond the age of 30 and they and they don't believe in the system there's that and then you go to page 17 the first couple of panels as logan and jessica arrive at cathedral and it's all busted up it's you know it's clearly a neglected uh section of their world it's all overgrown and everything and so again you know this isn't the the idyllic utopian society that we saw in the very beginning there's cracks in this and it makes me wonder you know what would have happened down the road in this society 
without Logan running? Like, would we still have eventually seen maybe some sort of a, a rebellion or, or something with these people that are, that are plotting, you know, that are talking about sanctuary and, and, and Jessica's friends, essentially. I'm thinking without Logan that, and this is, I guess it's the same thought movie or comic that Logan somehow becomes the key player in the uh, rebellion, for lack of a better word. Uh, and that without him spearheading it the way he does, that it would have gotten quashed. That's yeah, that's the way I probably. see it. That they, you know, <laughs> there, there would have there would have been an uprising. Clearly, there was this element, but I think they you know they needed the guy, the key player in the in the drama, to step forward, and that ended up being Logan, which ended up being really this society working against itself because they sent him out there on this mission, effectively, or the right. computer did. And if it hadn't done that, you know, they they probably would have been able to uh, to to get rid of these rebels. But they right. set themselves they set themselves in a bad spot, and then they paid for it. I couldn't help but note that there is no Mary two in this adaptation. She's the little girl that they meet when they first get to cathedral that steals Jessica's bracelet in the movie. She's not in the the adaptation. I like on page. Um, 20, I think it's 23, but the numbering is kind of fuzzy on my digital copy here. Um, but when they get attacked by the Cubs, Logan gets whacked in the face with like a, it looks like a steel pipe or something and, and actually has a, like a bloody scar from this through the rest of the issue. That's actually going to play into the next issue in a sequence that I think the film could have really benefited from, um, but is not in the film. So he does not sustain this wound. Uh, in the film that he does in the comic, but it actually, I think it's pretty cool. And it adds some real drama to this. Uh, let's see my next notes, page 26. Oh yeah. Page 26, third panel. I just love that panel. It's, uh, uh, where, uh, Billy is advancing on him with the muscle and there's just something about the, the artwork there, especially the, the inking and everything with Logan. He's sweating. He's, he's looking at his gun laying on the floor thinking, you know, can I, can I make a break for it? I like that. That is a really nice piece of art. And I think it bears noting that he does not lose his gun in the movie. It's having his gun that keeps him from being attacked in the movie because he just he gets tired of the kids uh, after a bit and he just starts firing shots. So this actually is more dramatic in a certain way in the adaptation because he has to fight his way to his gun. Uh, I think that's about all I've got for this one. I love this issue this is uh this is one of my absolute favorite single issues of of any comic ever i love it all right so why don't you give us all your ears now <laughs> uh let's uh, yeah let's do grades on this real quick the cover unfortunately is not an a i like the cover um but if you asked me to tell you who the artists were on this um i don't know that i would say george perez because it's i don't think it's a particularly Perez cover. Um, it really looks like Salbury Sama to me. Well, you know, you know what I and I'm just looking because there are, you know, it is signed, uh, right? And it's GP and AM. And the more yeah. I think, oh yeah, Al Milgram. Okay, that's right. <laughs> that's what did it. <laughs> that could be, yeah, that could be. 
Um, and I, 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 I like hate that it. I'm always I insulting just... Al Milgram because from everything I hear, he was just like <laughs> a great guy, and I feel like I'm always doing bad by him. But sorry, I just I'm not <laughs> impressed by his artwork. I like this cover. It's not my least favorite cover of the adaptation, but it's not my favorite one either. Grade-wise, I'm going to go a middle-of-the-road C on it. It's it's okay. Um, it's it's effective for what it is. It's just it's not my favorite. Interior art is just... It's stunning. It's amazing to see how far this guy has come in such a very short time, uh, meaning George Perez. And yeah, you know, while uh, Klaus Jansen on the surface of it seems like he would be such an ill fit for Perez, really, really works here. I mean, there's honestly, as I as I flip through this book, there's only one panel in the entire book that I look at and go, okay, that's what I would have expected to see, and it's not what I got, and that's on page 22. Uh, second panel, the one where the gun's being knocked out of Logan's hands, that's a very um, Klaus Jansen-y face right there. You know, that the hard angles and all of that, that's something I would more associate with him, uh, with his work with Frank Miller, and I'm not uh, a fan of that stuff at all. But the rest of it really complements Perez very, very well to a point where I... I I have a hard time imagining anybody else doing this because I think he brings a grit to it when they're doing the futuristic stuff. It's gleaming and shining and bright and it looks really, really good. I mean, his having done both the inks and the colors, I think really benefits this adaptation. But as soon as they leave the nice clean world of the city and they go to cathedral, it becomes dark and moody and gritty and he handles that really well. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, that splash page at the end of the book works as well as it does, is he's bringing a, a mood and a grit to it that it needs, that another inker might not have, uh, you know, might have kept Perez's clean lines and clean style, and, and it wouldn't be as effective. I don't know, what do you think about that? I, I think the artwork just, Again, like I had said earlier, I think it, it surprises me because if you talked to me before you did this, and I had the knowledge I have, and said, this is the combination we're going to put together, I would have said, no, that's a mistake. And yeah, right. look, and look at it. Um, look at it, yeah. Well, you know, my, my criticism of the artwork, there's the only I had two things. Uh, one was the depiction of children. Uh, and again, I, I just think that's such a common problem in comics, but it's, it's one that exists here. It's so rare that I've seen children that look like children. Um, and the other problem was what we pointed out. Just, there's just that one sequence, uh, where the dialogue doesn't seem to quite fit the action we see. And I'm not so sure that's an art problem so much as a, uh, as a dialogue problem. Maybe they should have changed a little Excuse me. Changed a little bit around there. Where was that at? Uh, the the part when uh, when he lets the runner go. Oh right. Just the, you know the sequence of panels there. I, I felt like it, it it didn't didn't quite jibe with what we got in the uh, in the dialogue. I think if that middle panel between because it's basically a three panel strip. You've got Jessica and Logan just emerging from you know the the cub area. 
and then a dialogue panel, and then the panel of them being watched by the conspirators. I think if that middle panel had a background in it that more established their position outside the door as being close to the door and out of the view of the conspirators, maybe it would work a little better. Because I, I agree with you, it, it does. Well, maybe, maybe if when when the conspirators first, you know, in the in the, pa- the third panel, if if their dialogue started off with something, or actually. In that panel, if one of them said to the other, "There they are," that that they hadn't been right, watching yeah. them the whole time, you know, yeah. something along those lines. But that's right. again, that's a it's pretty small nit to pick. <laughs> Why didn't you go to the bathroom before we let? Yeah, something. <laughs> so anyway, interior art on this, I am going to give this. I'm going to give this a straight up. Ooh, I know we usually reserve A pluses for the the absolute top of the heap. I, I think I'm gonna have to give this an A plus. I just I love it. I honestly I love it top to bottom. I think it's I think it's fantastic stuff. Maybe it's just because I'm I'm just so close to it, but I I think it's I think it's great. I think it's beautiful. Uh, and then story, I think I'm gonna give the story an A uh, as opposed to an A plus only because. I miss some of the specific dialogue from the film. Now, while we get some great additional dialogue that we don't get in the movie, while we, you know, one of the things I love about comics, of course, is you get into the character's head, so you get, you know, inner monologues and things like that. We do get some different angles in the adaptation that we don't get in the films as well. So it's it's give and take. We get information from both sources, independent of another. So you know, put them both together, you you got the the, the full picture. Um, but again, there are a couple of specific lines that I think really could have added to this if, if they'd made the transition from the film to this. But uh, overall grade uh, on the entire issue, um, I, I'm going to give it a straight up. Uh, I'm going to give it a straight up A. I think it's fantastic. I, I'm tempted to go straight A plus across the board just because I love it so much. But uh, I, I think it's great. I'm going to be more critical than you, and you're still not going to be disappointed. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the cover. I like the layout of the cover. It's just the I, it's the way the children are drawn. It just bothers me a little bit. So I'm going to say a B on the cover because I think if the children were drawn better, it would be an A. Uh, the interior art, I think, is really, really sharp, and I do think it, it borders on A+. But I have those couple of little nitpicks, so I'm just going to give it a straight-up A. And the story is, it's solid. It's a, you know, an adaptation of the movie. I think it, it the dialogue for the most part fits. Uh, I'm going to say a B plus on, on the writing on it. Uh, and then I'm going to give the book an A minus overall. Cool. Before we go, I just happened to flip back to it. And I know I forgot to mention it before that part I was talking about where a reflection helps move the narrative. If you go to page seven, it's where they're in Logan's apartment. He shows her his life clock. And then there's the shot of the dining area, which I think is really cool because it's got those cool egg chairs. Mm-hmm. That fourth panel, he's holding up the onk to her, but you can't see it. You can only see it in the reflection in the window behind her. Right. I think that's really clever. Yeah. It's just a nice artistic touch that feels very cinematic. But I, I thought that was really neat. In a, in a book filled with nice artistic touches. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but that'll do it for issue two. We will be back with issue three whenever. Sometime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Scott, and thank you, everybody, for listening.
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.
uh, Richard Jordan goes, you lost another sub? That's kind of how the movie ends, and, uh, and I always like that. He kind of wraps the movie up, if you know what I mean. Hang on just a second while I scream at the stupid fucking dog again. You want a dog? <laughs> I have one, thank you. <laughs> uh, all of that will get cut out of this, but... Uh, oh, yeah, I think it would. Fucking nuts. 